We have just sung, Father, of your multiplied graces, of your power and authority, your eternality. All things are in your hands. All time is in your hands. All authority is in your hands. We rest in that. But as we come here resting in that, we know that out there, outside these walls, there are many things that are not resist, not resting in your hands, but they are resisting your hands. They're opposed to you. Even as we read in Revelation 16, when the outpouring of your wrath will be on this earth in a particular way, people will still rebel against you be hardened in their sin, hardened in their hatred of you. And we know that that's in that world, in that place, and that's where we live. And so, Father, would you give us grace for being lights to those who are in opposition to you, if perchance some might be awakened And come to saving faith in Christ. Some even that live within our own homes and in our neighborhoods. And Father, would you, even while living in this darkened world, give us hope and confidence in you. We've been through difficult passages in the book of Zechariah. And now we come to the passages that are meant to give us hope. Would they do that? confidence in you, confidence in the greatness of the one who is not only our God, but is the God of all people in all times and all places, the one who is singularly authoritative, the one who stands above all, and the one who is gracious above all, the one who gives salvation and will lead home those to whom he gives salvation. And would you give us confidence in that? As we come to this text, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you will recognize the poem I'm about to quote. It is one of my favorite poems. Now, I'm, some of you may not know, um, but I'm really not a poetic kind of guy. I mean, some preachers just love poetry. They love writing poetry, and I'm not one of those guys. I was a lit major in college, and I didn't have great care for the poetry classes but this poem I really love. And some of you will recognize it. It comes from the pen of Judith Vorst, If I Were in Charge of the World. If I were in charge of the world, six-year-old Alexander opines, there'd be brighter nightlights, healthier hamsters, and basketball baskets 48 inches lower. If I were in charge of the world, you wouldn't have to be lonely. You wouldn't have to be clean. You wouldn't have bedtimes or don't punch your sister. You wouldn't even have sisters. If I were in charge of the world, a chocolate sundae with whipped cream and nuts would be a vegetable. And a person who sometimes forgot to brush and sometimes forgot to flush would still be allowed to be in charge of the world. Now that's poetry. (laughs) It's probably good that Alexander isn't in charge of the world or of anything else. But he does identify a typical longing, doesn't he? 
There is within us a relentless desire for control in this world. I want to control the temperature outside. I want to control the traffic, my schedule, my children, my spouse, my parents, my expenditures. No anticipated expenses, please. And actually, I control nothing. We're aware that God is sovereign. We know that God is good. But isn't it a struggle to be humble and content under His sovereignty when we are inclined to orchestrate the events of our lives that we want control over differently than the way God orchestrates them for us? We're talking this morning about God's sovereignty, His mastery over mankind in a particular way, but it refers to His sovereignty. But is God absolutely sovereign? Are all things absolutely under His control? When I do counseling and I meet with people, one of the first things I do in the first session is I'm just asking lots of questions and trying to gather information about why they're coming to see me, why they need some help. And then I spend about five minutes at the end, invariably using Romans 8, 28 and 29, helping them see that there's help for their situation. And that verse, of course, says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God or are called according to his purpose. And so I flesh that out and I just ask them, what are all things? Well, I don't know, preacher, it just kind of seems like all things. Well, tell me some things that fall in that category of all things. And they start identifying things. And it's always, almost always the good things, right? It's children, it's obedient children, it's pleasant places to live and you know, it's food on the table and those kinds of things. And I say, well, but all things can't mean. And then I start reciting some of the hardships of their lives. And very often people start shaking their heads and say, that, that's right. But it couldn't include that. It couldn't include that. If all things are going to work together for good, it couldn't include that because that's not good. And I'll say, okay, you have your Bible open? Yeah, Romans 8, 28. What does it say? And we know that, what, what's that word? All things. Is God really that sovereign to take all the hardships, all the circumstances to work for good? Is that really so? To even ask the question, How sovereign, how extensive is God's sovereignty is to misunderstand the meaning of sovereignty. To say that God is sovereign is to say that he has absolute control, absolute direction, absolute power and authority over everything. Nothing escapes his control. There is not a single renegade atom in this universe, not one If there was even one, then he's not sovereign and he's not in control. He sees all. He's authoritative over all. Yet our puny little brains and our fleshly hearts are inclined to diminish his sovereignty to something less than what it is. So Zechariah 
is really helpful this morning to remind us about the absolute extent and authority of God's sovereignty. Just how far does it go? He's going to unpack that for us. Last week we noted that as sovereign creator, God has the authoritative right to speak. And by that we meant that God has the the authoritative right to declare His will. God can say, this is the way it will be. And He has that right to say that. Today, in Zechariah 12, starting in verses 2 through 9, uh, we're going to peek back at verse 1 for a moment. We're going to see that God will defend Israel physically from her fleshly enemies. Next time, we'll see how God will protect Israel spiritually and grant spiritual life to her. This morning's text is focused on God's physical provision for Israel a physical provision that's rooted in his sovereign authority. I've summarized the text this way. In his sovereignty, God will protect his people physically in the last battle. At the last, t- at the last day, in the day of the Lord, God's people Israel will be preserved and they will be preserved by an act of his sovereign authority and will. How will he do that? Well, he tells us in a series of five I will statements in verses 2, 3, 4, 6, and 9 that God will direct us to an increasing understanding of his sovereign authority in the last day. So five I will statements that I've summarized in four statements. Um, He expresses his sovereign authority in that last day. Just how sovereign is God? How extensive is His sovereignty? The first place we will see it in this text, Zechariah chapter 12, is that God is sovereign to gather the nations to battle. God is sovereign to gather the nations to battle. I was going to read the text before I got started, and I got so excited about the message that I forgot to do that. So let me read the text for you, starting in verse 1, Zechariah chapter 12. If you haven't found it yet, find the book of Matthew or Mark or Luke or John and go backwards into the Old Testament, just a few pages, and you'll find Zechariah. It's the next to last book of the Old Testament, Zechariah 12. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens, lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. Behold... I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. And all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, A strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of the hosts, their God. In that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among pieces of wood and a flaming torch among sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while all the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, 
so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is the living word of the living God. As we look at this passage again, what we're going to find is God's sovereignty and in His sovereignty how He will protect His people Israel in the last day at the last battle. First of all, He is sovereign to gather the nations to battle. Remember the context of this chapter. This chapter follows one of the most difficult, one of the most discouraging, one of the most despondency-provoking chapters in this book, certainly, and perhaps in the Bible. And these verses, following on the difficulty of chapter 11, begin one of the most hopeful sections of the Bible. And the emphasis is on that day. You've heard it five times, I believe, already as I just read those nine verses, that day, on that day, on that day. And that day is particularly talking not just about any old day, but it is talking about the day of the Lord. We unpacked that last week. It's the day of the Lord. It's the day of of God's judgment and wrath against the nations at the end of the tribulation in preparation for the coming of Christ to establish His kingdom and to rule on His millennial throne for a thousand years. In this particular passage, that day is not just looking at the tribulation and the judgment at the end of the tribulation in general, but it is looking particularly at the battle of Armageddon. It happens right at the very end of the tribulation. It's that battle that we spoke of, read of in Revelation 16 earlier this morning. And it's that battle that prefigures the coming of Christ. Christ will come immediately after that battle, cleanse the nations, wipe everybody away, and then ascend his throne and rule on his millennial throne. Chapters 12 to 14 not only focus on the coming of Christ and the anticipation of Christ that's coming in chapter 14, but it also focuses these three chapters on the nations. So 13 times we find references to the nations. 22 times we find references to Jerusalem 31 times we find references to the covenant name of God, Yahweh. So all of these things are tied together to bring about an understanding about how God, the covenant-keeping God that made His promises to Israel, will bring everything to fruition at the end of time. It's justice towards Israel, grace towards Israel, and justice towards the nation's and the provision of the final king, Messiah, Jesus, on his throne in Jerusalem. Now, as we come to the passage, what I really want to spend time on this morning is in verse 2 through 9. But just by way of reminder, remember what happened in verse 1. Verse 1 affirms God's right to not only act authoritatively, but even to speak authoritatively. And he's speaking about, in particular, this final battle. And we find his authority and his right to speak, even in the first words of this chapter, the burden 
of the word of the Lord. That word burden is a word that is often translated oracle. It can also mean judgment. It doesn't mean judgment in this instance. It simply means it's a declaration. God is unfolding, exposing the massiveness of his declaration as it regards Israel. So in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he was referring to his judgment, his oracle against the nations. This is his oracle for Israel, his protection of Israel. And then right after that, verse 1 tells us, thus declares, so God is coming with an oracle and he comes with a declaration. And that word declaration is particularly a, a word that is used in the prophets. It's a prophetic word. And it's a word that helps us to understand that God is going to say something. He is coming to speak with authority as a prophet, as the ultimate prophet, as the ultimate, ultimate revealer of his plan. These two words combined have the sense of saying, I have authority. I have the floor. I have the right to speak. And you will listen. And what follows then in chapters 12 to 14 is the completion of everything that he has spoken, everything that he has promised previous, previously as it relates to Israel and the completion of his plan for Israel. The other thing that verse 1 tells us is not just that God is speaking, I have the floor, but he has a right to do that. On what basis? Because of his creative power. He is the one who stretches out the heavens He makes everything above. He lays the foundation of the earth. He makes everything below. And he forms the spirit of man within him. He makes everything outside us and he makes everything inside us. In other words, he is sovereign over everything in creation. And because of that, he has a right to speak with authority. And so he's going to do that. And what is the content of what he says? Verse 2. And verse 3 are a pair of verses that unfold for us the coming of the nations to Jerusalem and to Judah to do battle. So notice what he says in verse 2. God speaking, behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup of reeling that causes a cup, excuse me, that causes reeling to all the peoples when the siege is against Jerusalem. It will come about in that day. Verse 3, I'll make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. And end of the verse, all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. So verses 2 and 3 are talking about the coming of the nations. The peoples refer to all the other people who are not Israelites. And they are coming to Israel in the form of nations to do battle against Israel. And particularly, they are fighting against Jerusalem But the text tells us in verse 2, it's a siege against Jerusalem. Jerusalem being the head, the capital of Israel. But not just against Jerusalem, also against Judah. So it's the concentration of forces against Judah. We're going to take down the capital and we're going to destroy the capital. But we're also going to take out everything surrounding it. We want to decimate Israel. It's another expression of the world's hatred of God and the world's hatred of God's people. And in that day, they will see that as the ultimate opportunity to destroy God's people and God's promise. This is 
This is no small battle. Revelation chapter 9 tells us that there will be some 200 million soldiers at this battle. They are, they are wanting to permanently wipe out Israel. Israel is proud of its defense system. If you go over there now and um, you were to walk around and talk to citizens of Israel, they would speak of their ability to defend themselves and protect themselves. There's no protection against 200 million people. They will be in a bad way in that day. Why would the nations gather themselves against Israel? Why, why are they so opposed to Israel? There seems to be something of an anomaly here. Because in all honesty, there, there's no significant wealth in Jerusalem, not compared to the nations. And there's no significant natural resources in Jerusalem. It's not like Jerusalem is sitting on this gold mine of something that all the nations are saying, we want that. In part, it is because of the position geographically of where Jerusalem is. So let me just orient you on this map. At the bottom, uh, we have the top part of Africa. You can see uh, Europe and Asia. And uh, what is Russia at the top to the east is, is Arabia and Saudi Arabia. And right at the far eastern end of the Mediterranean Sea uh, is the city of Jerusalem. It's, let me see if I can point it. It's right there. That's Judea. And it's a really strategic location. Why? Because if you want to go north or south by land, from Europe or Asia to Africa, or from Africa to Europe or Asia, you got to go right through Jerusalem. It's really strategic. You can't just go east. That large mass that's to the right of my arrow is desert. You can't cross it. There's no way across it. So if you want to go east at that place, you first got to go north and then you can go east into what used to be Babylonia and the Tigris and Euphrates and, and that rich area. And so the nations will want Jerusalem in part, I believe, because they can control much of the world by controlling Jerusalem and Israel. That's in play. But I think it's even more likely that they are wanting to destroy Israel because the nations have always been against Jerusalem and always sought to destroy her and Israel. We saw this way back in chapter 1. The Lord showed me four craftsmen, Zechariah writes, verse 20 and 21. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns which have scattered Judah so that no man lifts up his head. But these craftsmen have come to terrify them, to throw down the horns of the nations who have lifted up their horns against the land of Judah in order to scatter it. They want to destroy God's people. It has always been that way. The psalmist writes of it in Psalm 2, the opening verses of Psalm 2. He says, Why are the nations in an uproar? And the people's devising a vain thing. The, 
The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The nations hate God because they hate his righteousness. They want to do what they want without him. And because God has chosen Israel, their rebellion against God naturally has an outlet against Israel. They want to destroy them. What's interesting in this text is that while the nations are coming to Israel, they're also being summoned by God to this battle. It's subtle in this text. And if this was the only text, it would be a reach to say God is calling them. But there, there's implication. All through this text, God is saying, I will make, I will make, I will make, I will do. And the indication is I'm bringing them here so that I can do this. But we have an even more explicit text on the other side of your page of your Bible or maybe one page over, chapter 14. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil will be taken from you and will be divided among you. Verse 2, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, And the city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the exiles, uh, half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then, oh, don't you like some of those transition words? Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. He's called them so that he can battle with them one last time and it will be done. That's in this text. That's what's going on. This is God's summons. This is God's battle to fulfill God's promise to Abraham to protect his people, to judge all unrighteousness and to inaugurate his kingdom. Only Christ will be king when this battle is over. The nations are coming to destroy Israel. But in great irony, they're coming to their own destruction. As one writer says, positioning themselves for the stroke of God's unmixed wrath upon them. What will Yahweh do when the nations gather against his people? Notice verse 2. I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling. In the Old Testament, that word cup often indicated the judgment of God. We don't have time to go there this morning, but maybe just jot in your notes, Jeremiah 25, 15 and following. And there you find a graphic picture of what it means to drink the cup that comes from God and from His wrath. And here he again says that He is dispensing his cup of wrath on the nations. But even more than that, notice that he says, I, that's his sovereignty, I am, I will make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling. So the nations are coming to Jerusalem to vanquish Jerusalem. And instead, Jerusalem will be empowered so that the nations will be vanquished and 
Jerusalem and the nation of Israel will dispense God's wrath against the nations by judging them. They're coming to destroy God's people and God's people will judge them. Now, don't miss the irony here. You take that little word cup and you say, I'm going to take a cup of wine. Most people think of that cup as a cup of celebration. And as the nations are coming to Israel, that's what they're thinking. We're bringing the nations of the world against Jerusalem and finally we'll be rid of her. All the Jews will be eradicated. We're done. And they're coming in a celebratory manner. And they will drink it. Says one writer, they will stagger about as if in a drunken stupor, unable to defend themselves against divine retribution. God through Jerusalem will pour out his wrath on the peoples of the world. There's a second picture in this text of what happens to the nations. It's given to us in verse 3. Again, the peoples are coming. The nations of the earth are coming, gathered against Jerusalem. And again, God says, I will make. That's his terminology for my sovereignty. The nations are coming. They're not sovereign. They won't win. I am master. I'm authoritative. I'm in control of this thing. I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone. The stone is so heavy, it indicates that it is immovable. Little old Jerusalem becomes firmly entrenched and unmovable. The imagery is something of they've picked up this stone or they're attempting to pick up this stone as if they can loot a place and take the loot away with them after they have vanquished the city. And they are straining to pick it up. And it says they will be injured. Not just injured, but that word for injury is often used to talk about lacerations and cuts. It's going to be brutal against them. Severely injured. Massively injured. Not only can the nations not not lift Jerusalem to remove her, but they will be severely defeated. Easily defeated. They come to the lightweight. And the lightweight has become a heavyweight, and he destroys them. Not on this day, not on this battlefield. Israel will not be removed, and instead, Israel, Jerusalem, will become a source of injury and death for the nations. And notice that the text tells us that this will be the situation for all. The peoples, all who lift it, all the nations. Brothers and sisters, no one escapes the wrath of God. No one. All the nations oppose Israel, and all the people of all those nations will be incapable of moving them. All of them will be vanquished. The totality of the defeat of the nations is secure. I don't know if you open up a newspaper today or open up a news app today. It doesn't feel that way, does it? Newsflash. All the nations will not 
stand. This is the news you need. This is what's certain and nothing else. Even more, you have to notice that God is behind all of this. While Jerusalem is fighting, it's not Jerusalem's power. This is God's just retribution against the rebellion of the nations. They will not overthrow his people and they will not overthrow him. Which is a reminder to us that the sovereignty of God assures us of the victory of God and of his people at the end of the age. Little skirmishes along the way are not final and fatal for God's people and for the believer. It is the last battle that counts. And on that day, God will utter his ultimate, I will and all will be one. There's a little line that I referenced or or saw quoted this week that comes from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And it's asked in the form of a question. I'm going to make it a statement. Everything sad will become untrue on that day. All sadness will become untrue. All sadness will be undone. Oh, friend, let us rest in that. That the sadness is vanquished. The sadness is gone. And Christ will be exalted. God is sovereign to gather the nations to battle. Secondly, God is sovereign to vanquish the participants in the battle. This is verse 4. In that day, again, speaking about the day of the Lord, the, the day of the battle of Armageddon, in that day declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and his rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Here's the third of the five I will statements in this section. And in this instance, it's God's declaration, not just that he will vanquish the nations, but it's God's declaration that he will vanquish all the individual people within the nations. No armies will escape. No individuals will escape. In that day, the Lord will act again. And notice the text tells us he will strike every horse with bewilderment. Now, in that day, the horse was a symbol of strength and the horse was the most advanced military weapon they had. To have the largest contingency of horses was to have almost certainty of victory in battle. The horse was the most powerful weapon that they had. Horses, we find in this book, are an important theme. We find horses... From, ver- from chapter 1 almost all the way to the end of the book. And yet what we find in multiple places in this book is that the horses, the weapons of the nations are powerless. Just one example, chapter 10, verse 5. They will be as mighty men treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle, speaking about Israel, and they will fight For the Lord will be with them and the riders on horses will be put to shame. They'll have the most advanced technology, the most advanced weapons, and they will not stand every one of them. Not just the horses 
not only that the horses will be bewildered, but notice he also says that they will be struck with blindness. The horses of the peoples, end of the verse, with blindness. Not only are the horses, the weapons, blind and bewildered, wandering about, staggering about, not sure about where to go, like madmen, fearful, but also the people, the riders of the horses will be in the same way. And so he says in verse 4, strike the horse with bewilderment and the rider with madness. So the weapons won't work and the people won't work. It's interesting that the Lord uses that terminology. It's not the first time He's used used those terms in a single verse. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, speaking to the nation of Israel about what will happen to them if they obey the Lord, blessings, what will happen to them if they disobey, cursings, He says this in Deuteronomy 28, verses 27 and 28. If you're disobedient, the Lord will smite you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. Verse 28, the Lord will smite you with madness and with blindness and with bewilderment of heart. Same terms. So what God promised to Israel, if you are rebellious and disobedient, He actually turns and uses against the nations as part of the ultimate judgment against the nations. They'll be confused, terrified, fearful. And notice, it is about individual weapons, individual horses, individual people. Every rebel weapon, every rebel soldier will be vanquished under the wrath of God. And God adds, I will watch over the house of Judah. Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, the covenant-making God, will watch, literally open my eyes on Judah and care for them. We, We find this kind of refrain about God's omniscient watching, His omniscient knowing, His care of people, His observation of His people, all through this book, chapter 9, verse 8. I will camp around my house because of an army, because of Him who passes by and returns, and no oppressor will pass over them anymore, for now I have seen with my eyes. I've seen, I know. I'm going to vanquish the nations because of that. This phrase suggests that he would be particularly attentive to Judah's needs. He's watching over. It also implies that he is not striking indiscriminately. He's not just saying, okay, I'm going to wipe out the nations and I'm going to lose a few of my people along the way, but that's okay. I'm going to wipe out 200 million and if I lose a few hundred or a few thousand a mile, that's okay. No. He's watching over Judah. Judah won't die. Jerusalem won't die. The nations will. Not one illegitimate expression of God's wrath will be poured out on that day because He's watching 
He's attentive to where the judgment is going and he's attentive to where the protection is going. His judgment is never misplaced. His people will be preserved and sustained. You have likely been encouraged by the reminder from Jesus' lips in Matthew chapter 11, His eye is on the sparrow. Here is an even greater reminder. His eye is on the enemy and not one rebel soldier will escape. And likewise, His eye is on His faithful people and not one of them will suffer unjustly ultimate harm. His people are safe. They're safe. God is sovereign to gather the nations. He is sovereign to vanquish the participants in the battle. Thirdly, verse 5, He is sovereign to change the hearts of His people in battle. He's sovereign to change the hearts of His people in battle. One of the most rebellious acts of the nation of Israel, and there were a host of them in the Old Testament, but one of the most rebellious acts of Israel in the Old Testament was to reject God as her king. We find that in 1 Samuel chapter 8. We want a king like the nations. We want a king in flesh and blood. And Samuel warned them, don't do this. And God tells Samuel, give it to them. That's what they want. It's an act of rebellion against me. It's not you they're disobeying. It's me they're disobeying. That was one of their greatest acts of folly and rebellion. And on that day, the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, verse 5, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. Jerusalem's protecting us, but it's not Jerusalem. It is God who is protecting us. And it's not just the leaders of Jerusalem that are saying this. It's the leaders that were fundamentally against Christ and His first incarnation. But it's not just the leaders of Judah who are saying this. It is the clans of Judah. It's the families of Judah. It's all of the people of Judah who have gathered together and acknowledged that our strength is not in us. It's in God. And notice that they don't just say this. But they say it in their hearts. The clans of Judah say in their hearts. That is, inwardly, they believe. And what we're talking about there is national repentance. A national turning of the nation of Israel to the Messiah for her salvation. We're going to unpack that more of that next week. Why is this important? It's important to remember this because in that day, in that day in which Zechariah was prophesying, the people had returned from Babylonian captivity, but they were still facing opposition. And because of some of that opposition, though they had laid the foundation of the temple for 20 years, they stopped building the temple until Zechariah and Haggai came around and said, you got to keep building, you got to keep going. God is greater. The Lord of hosts is greater. The, Lord's of, the Lord of the armies is really for you. And He can't be defeated. They didn't have confidence in God. They were hesitant to carry out their responsibilities to God. And now, in verse 5, Zechariah, God speaking through Zechariah says, In that day, they're going to turn around and say, It's the Lord. 
and they're going to come to Him. My friend, if you are here today and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, just by way of reminder, if you're a follower of Christ, you won't be there. You won't be here on that day of battle. You'll be in glory, raptured out before this battle. That in itself is an amazing gift of God's grace to you. But God's victory at Armageddon is still a great comfort to you because God is an unchanging God. And since nothing will escape his notice on that day, nothing will escape his notice on this day either. And if you are his, if you're saying in your heart, he's my power, he's my strength, he's my authority, you are well cared for. If you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, God is offering his care. God is offering his provision. And he desires your genuine love and trust of him. That's that's implied in this text, right? The people of Judah will say in their hearts, he wants your heart. He wants you to say, I'm done with myself and I'm done with my rebellion and I'm done pushing against God and I'm submitting to him. He alone is my authority. And that's what he wants. And if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, I cannot urge you more strongly to make this day a day of repentance in which you turn away from your sin and say, I'm done with my sin. I don't want my sin anymore. I want a Savior from my sin who can lead me into paths of righteousness. And if you make that decision, if you will, to follow after Him, He will save you. Nations. This isn't just about Israel. Nations. People from the nations will be folded into these promises. But you have to repent. You have to turn away from your sin. You have to turn to Him and say, I want to follow you. Would you change my life? If you're not a believer, I urge you most strongly to Turn away from your sin, repent from your sin, repent of your rebellion, and trust that Jesus died on the cross for your sin and to enable you to live free from your sin. Well, we've been talking about God's sovereignty, His sovereignty over the nations to gather them, to vanquish them. He is sovereign enough to change the hearts of people. Lastly, He is sovereign to strengthen His people for the battle. Very quickly, verses 6 through 9. We find another I will in verse 6. In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves. That, that, that is pretty self-evident. The word pot there is usually not something in which you would put a piece of firewood. It's typically a pot that was used for cooking food over a fire. But But he's extended the metaphor a little bit and said, let's take the fire outside the pot and put it inside the pot. And then let's throw this pot onto a pile of wood and see what happens. It's going to catch flame and it's going to burn. Similarly, what happens if you take a flaming torch and you put it among dried crops? They burn. I walked out across my yard yesterday And instead of feeling the nice, soft cush of green, I heard the crunch, crunch, crunch and saw the breaking off of the stems of my grass. So dry. 
Then one of my thoughts was, oh, nobody throw out a cigarette butt on your way by, right? What's going to happen? Instant flame. That's this. Instant flame. What is that? It's the fire of judgment. So they will consume on the right hand and the left, wherever people are coming from. Uh, Whether they're coming from the east or the west, they're going to be consumed. It doesn't matter where they come from. They're going to come and be consumed. And in such a way that they will be vanquished. And notice this, the end of verse 6. The inhabitants of Jerusalem will again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. They're safe. They're secured. People of Jerusalem are in Jerusalem, in their homes, in their places, in safety. God's accomplished it. God's brought it about. In verse 7, Zechariah reiterates again that God will do this. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first. Remember, the battle's coming to Jerusalem. We noted already in verse 2, it's not just Jerusalem, it's also in Judah. So they're coming to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the heart of the tribe of Judah. So they're coming to the capital city, but they're not just coming to the capital city. They're coming to all the outlying areas as well. They want to absolutely destroy everything about Israel. The Lord will save the tents of Judah first. So in Jerusalem, there's, there's protection, there's walls, there's safety, there's armaments. Out in Judah, there's just tents, there's nomadic people. They're vulnerable, they're unsafe, they don't have the armaments. And in that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a firepot. I will save the tents of Judah first. Why save people who are nomadic and intense and don't have the firepower first? So that the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be magnified above Judah. So the people of Judah can't say, it was all about us. We did it. So that it is clear that the people who had nothing were the first to vanquish the enemies and then Jerusalem. It's all about the glory of God and not the people getting the glory. He's going to save Judah. He's going to save Jerusalem. And then notice verse 8. And that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now it's very clear. It's not the inhabitants of Jerusalem who are saving themselves. In that day, on the day of the battle of Armageddon, it's the Lord who's defending them in such a way that the one who is feeble among them, the one who is weakest among them, will be like David. So you take the weakest. You take the Captain America before he's Captain America. And that one is going to be like David. Who is David? Well, David, in comparison to everyone, you might remember it was said of him, Saul is slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And the Captain Americas, before their Captain Americas, are like that. And not just that, but the house of David will be like God. That phrase, house of David, is an interesting phrase. It's almost always used 
of the messianic or Davidic line that produces the Messiah. So when the house of David is referenced, it almost always is talking about the kings that come from David and rule out of David. And the one who will rule ultimately out of the Davidic line is who? Jesus Christ. And who's Jesus Christ? He is the eternal God-man. So there's a sense in which you can read it and say, well, he's talking about the people of Israel will be like God. That's one sense. I think even more what he means is the ruler that comes from the house of David and is sitting on the Davidic throne will be like God. Why? Because he is God. He will be like the angel of the Lord before them because he is the angel of the Lord. It is a theophany. It is an expression of Christ. Verse 9, and in that day, I will set about God's sovereignty to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Now, to this point, all these verses, verses 1 to 8, have been largely figurative. Here he spells it out. It's kind of like with your kids. You know, you use this language, you're trying to communicate with them. And they kind of give you this funny look and you say, do you understand what I'm saying? Uh, Tell me what I said. I don't have a clue. And you say, let me tell you the way it is. Clean your room or you will be spanked. Do you understand that? Yes, sir. That's this. In case they didn't get it, on that day, I will destroy all the nations. Now, actually, that's not exactly what it says. It says, I will set about. Oh, so God's going to try to destroy the nations. No, no, no. There's no trying about it. God has set his course towards the destruction of the nations. And it cannot be avoided. He will destroy them. This is all about God's power, God's authority. And God fighting for his people. On that day, 200 million will be vanquished by the Lord and his army. God's always wanted us to see, while he uses people, it's never about people's power. It's always about his power. So Gideon showed up with his army and God said, too many And he whittled it down. And God said, too many. And he said, okay, I've got 300 faithful soldiers. Okay, that's enough. Now I can wipe out 120,000 people so that you know it's not you and your 300 that did it. It's like Isaiah and Sennacherib's army. 185,000 killed in one night by one angel. It's not the people. And God's battle in Armageddon, in Revelation 14 and 16, against 200 million people is not about the, pro, the, about the strength of Israel. It is about the strength of God. One commentator says about that battle, the blood flows like grape juice from an overflowing wine press, and it's found over an area of 200 miles. 
The violence of the carnage of this bloodbath is such that the blood, like juice overflowing a wine press, is splattered everywhere, even as high as the horse's bridles. It's a massive carnage that comes from the power of God. All of this chapter affirms the overwhelming opposition of the nations against Israel and against God and of Israel, empowered by God, overwhelming the nations with ease. God is going to provide a cataclysmic victory in the greatest day of trouble for Israel. Jesus wins. Jesus has won. Jesus is winning. Jesus will win. Engineer and inventor Charles Kettering once said, my interest is in the future because I'm going to spend the rest of my life there. He's right. But is there safe passage to the future? And will the future be safe? In an age today when anxiety and fear is prolific, will that age be safe? Yes. Yes. And yes, we will get there safely because Israel will get there safely. And Israel and we will be eternally safe in that place because God said, I will. Father, thank you that when the world consistently says, I don't, I won't that you overwhelm it with a simple I will. You're sovereign. And that sovereignty is trustworthy. Israel is safe. And we will be safe. Not because of the power of any nationalistic military. But because of the power of God who reigns on his throne and who says, I will. Might we trust that in that day and in this day? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.